So, good evening. Starting again, just with that simple knowing that there is the body. The body sitting. And the body breathing. And again, orienting to that stillness of the body. As a stilling, a support for the stilling of the heart-mind. The body sitting, the body breathing, just that simple rhythm of breathing in and breathing out. And as the body and the heart and the mind become a little more quiet and still, it's a little easier to see how is the heart-mind now. What mental qualities are present right now is there mindfulness is there interest perhaps some tranquility some steadiness. Some equanimity or evenness of mind. Cultivating these skillful qualities individually and together.
as we continue now exploring mindfulness of the mind, continuing from where we left off this afternoon when we were exploring the role of thought, of mental activity to shape our world for good or for ill. And then in this afternoon's Insight Dialogue practice, we were exploring how identifying with our thoughts, taking them personally, having them define us, is often a powerful source of suffering. So I was inspired to hear and to see many of you that even though the starting point of that exploration was our afflictive thought patterns, the contemplation actually brought up many skillful mental qualities, qualities such as some of the ones I just named, mindfulness, clarity, interest, openness, non-clinging, release, alongside the heart qualities such as kindness or compassion, perhaps appreciative joy and equanimity. And this is the potential benefit of being willing to face into painful mental states. With the support of another, we're able to meet them with mindfulness, steadiness and care, and then they can release. And from that release, there's literally more room in the heart and mind for beautiful, skillful qualities to blossom. Tonight, then, I'd like to continue exploring how both silent and relational insight practice work together to support this balance of wisdom and open-heartedness. And this is a balance that the Buddha himself, before he became a Buddha, initially struggled to find. So if we find it challenging, I find it comforting that even the Buddha didn't find it easy at first. So some of you may be familiar with the story of the Buddha's life and how he framed all of his teachings in terms of what he called the middle way the balance between extremes of any kind. And this need for balance came directly out of his own life experience, where, according to the legend, as a young man, he lived the life of a prince. So he was able to indulge every kind of sense pleasure imaginable. But eventually, at the age of 27 or so, he got tired of all of that hedonism and he left the confines of the palace in search of a more meaningful life. And for a while then, he went to the opposite extreme, from total self-indulgence to radical austerity. So he went and practiced with all the foremost spiritual teachers of his day, most of whom were teaching pretty hardcore ascetic practices, such as not sleeping for days on end, making a resolve to never lie down or only eating tiny amounts of food. And the Buddha-to-be was a very determined student, so he performed all of these practices very rigorously, 
in fact, to the point where he almost died. But fortunately for him and for us, he realized that this wasn't a very useful approach. So he changed his tactics. He started to eat to get his strength back. And then he started to develop the jhanas, the deep states of samadhi or absorption, that are very refined sources of pleasure. And it's said that not long after this change of heart, this change of course, he came to full awakening, complete freedom, known as Nibbana. And then in the very first teaching he gave after that awakening, he taught in terms of the middle way, this balance between self-indulgence and self-mortification. So it's worth considering for any of us in the context of our own lives, what balance do we have? And I'm guessing that most of us have a tendency more towards the self-indulgence than the hardcore asceticism. So self-indulgence is the tendency to take refuge in sense pleasures, to be oriented to looking, chasing, grasping after pleasant sense experiences and putting a lot of energy into manipulating the world out there to try and make ourselves happy. Which, as most of us know from our own experience, is at best only partly and temporarily successful. And the downside of that strategy is if we put all of our energy in trying to manipulate conditions out there, we don't develop the inner qualities that help us to meet life's inevitable challenges with more ease. So getting caught in self-indulgence is one extreme, and it tends to, in the long term, enhance suffering rather than free us from it. The other side of the extreme is self-mortification, which in the Buddha's day referred to all of the ascetic practices that were common back then. As I said, never sitting down, never lying down, sleeping on a bed of nails, eating hardly any food and so on. And these kinds of practices are not common in our culture anymore. But one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, has made the point that what is quite common is not so much physical self-torture, but psychological self-torture. There's something, sadly, in our social societal conditioning that makes many people very hard on themselves. And they can have very strong tendencies towards feelings of inadequacy, unworthiness, even self-loathing. Unconsciously or unconsciously, we often bring these underlying tendencies into our meditation practice. And it becomes yet another self-improvement project, one that is driven by self-judgment, anxiety, and fear. So as an antidote to that unbalanced approach, I've appreciated a metaphor that developed later on in the Buddhist tradition a metaphor that frames all of the path in terms of the two wings of awakening. And these two wings of awakening are wisdom and compassion. And we can understand, I think, from that metaphor that both 
wings need to be equally well balanced if we're going to fly. In other words, to awaken, to wake up, to experience the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind, all these practices that Buddha taught help to develop one or other of these two wings so that they balance each other out and give us the best conditions for liftoff. So just quick definitions to get started. Wisdom is another word for insight, clear seeing, everything we've been training in so far, the mindfulness practices, bringing awareness to the breath, the body, sounds, the mind. Compassion is the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness, and when possible, to help it to release. Now, perhaps because we are, most of us are most familiar with the insight tradition, the wisdom wing of the practice is the wing that's tended to get a lot more emphasis and not so much attention was paid to the compassion wing. And just to say that in this context, the compassion wing includes all four of the Brahma-Vihara qualities. So kindness, compassion itself, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And I'll be coming back, back to each of those in a little more detail soon. But for now, I want to stay with the big picture and to see how this metaphor of the two wings can help us find balance in our Dharma practice overall. Because most of us have a bias more towards one wing than the other. And so it can be helpful to look at the overall development of our practice. And from time to time just to check how is that balance between wisdom and compassion. And in my own practice with hindsight, I can now recognize phases where one wing got too far ahead of the other. And that gap was uncomfortable, uncomfortable, unsettling, discouraging, until eventually I realized what had happened and could take steps to come back to balance. So, as I mentioned, because we're in the insight tradition, it's usually more common in the students that I work with for the wisdom wing to get ahead of the compassion wing, because we put a lot of emphasis on seeing clearly. And at first, our insights are more on a psychological level as we start to recognize our personal habit patterns and all the ways we get triggered into painful reactivity. And at this stage, it can feel like all of our so-called deficiencies and inadequacies and painful and unskillful aspects of our psyche are revealed to us in vibrant high-definition technicolor. And it's painful because, as the old cliche goes, self-knowledge is not necessarily good news, at least at first. And then as the practice deepens, we move beyond psychological insights and start to come into deeper understanding of the three universal characteristics of experience that I mentioned briefly last night. The understanding that everything is impermanent, anicca. 
because of that impermanence, it's imperfect, unreliable, unsatisfactory, dukkha. And it's impersonal. There's no permanent, stable self at the center of it all to whom this is all happening. And most of it is outside of our control. So this is not self or anatta. And at first, experiencing the truth that everything is impermanent, imperfect, impersonal can be unsettling, even painful, because it challenges us to let go of some very deeply held beliefs about who we are and how the world is. So at these times, we might need to consciously orient to the compassion wing of the practice for a while to develop a more resilient heart-mind that can deepen into these understandings with some degree of balance. So then on the other side, on the other hand, there can be times when the compassion wing gets too far ahead of the wisdom wing. For example, as we connect more deeply with the truth of dukkha, especially at times like this, when it's so in our faces, you could say, we might start to feel our own and others' pain so intensely that we get overwhelmed. And we don't have to look very far to find this dukkha. Thanks to modern media, it's being beamed into our homes 24 hours a day. And that's on top of the dukkha we're already dealing with in ourselves, our families, our communities. So it's not surprising that at times we might fall into grief and despair. And at those times, we might need to reconnect with the wisdom wing of the practice, tune into the other two universal characteristics. Everything is impermanent and impersonal, constantly changing. Even dukkha comes and goes, and none of it is personal. And then it might become possible to, ta to taste moments of deep freedom, even in the midst of challenge. So bringing awareness to these two wings of wisdom and compassion, learning how to balance them, is part of the art of the practice. So given that most of us have more weight in the wisdom wing, how do we strengthen the compassion wing? Well, the Buddha offered these uh, four Brahma-Vihara qualities that we can train in and develop through regular meditation practice. And using a range of different techniques, they can help to make these beautiful qualities become more and more the default setting of our hearts and minds. So before I go into a little bit more detail about these, I want to say a bit more about the term Brahma-Vihara itself. It's a difficult phrase to translate into English because the Brahma part, Brahma refers to a kind of god that was worshipped in the Brahmin tradition in India at the time of the Buddha. And we don't really have a, an equivalent for Brahma in our own culture so it's sometimes translated as heaven instead. And the term vihara means dwelling place. So Brahma-vihara on a literal level means the dwelling place of Brahma. 
but it's more usually translated as divine abodes or sublime abidings or heavenly realms or boundless states. And what I'd like to highlight in those terms is this aspect of vihara as being home. Because these four qualities are our true home, a refuge for our hearts and minds. And when our hearts and minds are not assailed by stress, distress, difficulty, this is where we naturally abide or dwell. And there's a sense of ease there, just as there is in our physical homes. It's a place where we can feel relaxed, comfortable, who we truly are. And the second aspect of the term Brahma-Vihara that I'd like to highlight is the quality of boundlessness or unconditionality. So they're sometimes referred to as the four immeasurables with the idea that we can cultivate them so fully that they become unlimited, boundless, completely unconditional. Which is a pretty high bar. So before it starts to reinforce any pre-existing conditions of inadequacy, it's important to remember that these are practices, they're trainings, and we start where we are and then gradually cultivate these different flavors of love by training in them, practicing with them. So the first one is metta, and usually is metta is where we begin. And in the insight tradition, it's the foundation that the other three develop from. And metta is a Pali word that is usually translated into English as loving kindness. But some scholars and teachers have pointed out that this is not such an accurate or perhaps helpful translation because in English, to some ears, it, it can sound a bit sentimental or wishy-washy. And the loving part can be confusing because in English, the word love has a huge range of meanings. We talk about loving ice cream or loving pizza, for example. And then there's romantic love and that romantic love that's celebrated in music and movies and novels it's usually very exclusive it's very emotional it's unstable and it doesn't last so in some ways it's the opposite of the kind of love that we're talking about with metta so instead of loving kindness some people prefer to leave out the loving part and just translate it as kindness kindness or friendliness because the Pali word metta comes from the same root word for friendliness my tree and so hopefully thinking of metta as friendliness or goodwill makes it a bit more accessible and in fact, in some of the suttas, metta is simply defined as non-ill will. So perhaps that makes it even more accessible. It doesn't have to be this oceanic bliss state, but non-ill will. So this is a gradual training and especially in the beginning, the invitation is to start with where the metta comes most easily. And for most of us, that means keeping it simple 
and natural. And in my own practice in the beginning, I found metta really difficult for quite a few years. And so I started, especially with humans, so I started to bring in animals, creatures, wildlife, because in some ways that was an easier way to access metta. So it's sometimes easier to start practice with non-human beings because our relationship to animals, birds, fish, even insects is often less complicated than it is with human beings. So as I've been giving these talks around the world, I started to uh, develop a, a little tradition of paying attention to the wildlife in whatever setting I was in to see if I could find local native creatures that were kind of emblematic of these different Brahma-Vihara qualities or helped me to get them to arise. Now, unfortunately, because of the circumstances, I haven't actually been in the natural environment pretty much for two and a half months now. As you know, I've been in isolation first for two months in the UK and I just came out of quarantine in New Zealand yesterday, so I've barely been outside in all that time. So for this talk, I'm going to have to draw on examples that I found from last year when I was teaching at the Blue Mountains Insight Meditation Center. I think one or two of you may have been there. And some of you have been to BMIMC on other retreats, so perhaps these examples will be recognizable for you. So one of the things I love about being at BMIMC is all the different kinds of parrots and the vibrant colors that they have. So the king parrots with their ruby red and emerald green and the crimson rosellas, the blue and the red. And whenever I see that flash of vibrant red and blue feathers, I just feel this flicker of warmth. There's a momentary softening of the heart and for a moment or two, my preoccupation with whatever else I was dealing with just dissolves. So perhaps some of you have had a similar experience. If you close your eyes for a moment now, and perhaps imagine or remember if there's a particular bird, favorite bird, And if you visualize or remember that bird, is it perhaps just a slight flicker of warmth at the heart center? Maybe a little trace of a smile or softening of the eyes. And if you can find that, you might just let that register as the beginning of metta. And if you can't, don't worry, maybe birds just aren't your thing. Maybe some other kind of wild or domestic creature is. So over the next few days in your own home environment, you might see if you can find a, a living being that has that kind of metta effect for you. So metta is this foundational quality of kindness, of goodwill, of friendliness. And it's said that when this metta turns towards suffering, towards pain, it flowers naturally as the second Brahmavihara of karuna or compassion. So compassion 
is the willingness to turn towards pain, towards stress, distress, dukkha in all its forms, to meet that pain with kindness and, wherever possible, help it to release. And it's this intention to relieve the suffering that makes it more than just empathy. It's not just the heart that vibrates in response to pain. There's also an orientation to relieve that pain, if at all possible. So people sometimes ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? So for me, metta is a more generalized goodwill friendliness, whereas compassion is oriented specifically towards pain and suffering. So there is a close connection between the two, but energetically they feel slightly different. So to get a sense of that, there's another iconic bird experience I'd like to share. This is not directly my own but a couple of years ago, a friend showed me a very short video on YouTube in the U.S. And it was, I think it was shot on somebody's phone. And it shows a really small bird, maybe a sparrow, sitting on a metal railing outside a window. And it's winter, it's snowy. And the bird keeps trying to fly off, but it, it can't. It just seems to get stuck. And then you realize that the bird's feet are actually frozen to the metal railing. And so it can't fly away. And then this pair of men's hands, two large male hands appear in the video. And they just cup around the sparrow to stop it struggling. And then you see the man bend down and start blowing on the bird's feet to gently warm the metal around the bird's toes. And after a few seconds, the, the metal warms up enough and the bird's feet are freed. And the man says, here we go, little birdie. Go ahead and fly away. And it does. So as you heard that story, perhaps visualized it, imagined it, did you notice any energetic response in your heart-mind? And did it feel different than metta, kindness? This is part of the skill training of the Brahma-viharas to be able to tune in and to notice how these different flavors of love affect us. So the next in the sequence of the Brahma-viharas is mudita, often translated as sympathetic joy or altruistic joy. My preference is appreciative joy. And traditionally, the orientation here is towards sharing in other people's happiness. It's the capacity to feel gladness when we connect with somebody else's good fortune, success, skills, and so on. And of the four Brahma-vihara practices, this one seems to be the poor cousin. It doesn't get nearly as much attention as the others. And perhaps because in our dominant Western culture, the values of competitiveness and individualism 
make it pretty challenging to think that appreciating other people's success is a good idea. So for many people, mudita is the most challenging of these four qualities to connect with. But if we persevere, we can start to find that the ability to celebrate other people's happiness brings us many benefits. And we can recognize that actually self-preoccupation is a recipe for unhappiness, not happiness. So I like the lines from the Tibetan Master Shantideva, where he says, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. I'll read that again. All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. And if you take this on as a practice, you might find that our sense of separateness, of isolation, of lack starts to diminish. We begin to feel more connected to others, kinder and and more generous. We stop taking our own problems quite so personally and recognize that all beings want to be happy just as we do. And then the truth of interconnectedness and of anatta, not-self, starts to deepen. So in this way, mudita directly supports the development of insight. So to get a felt sense of the flavor of mudita, I'd like to share another bird example again from my time at BMIMC. And I was walking up and down the lane outside the meditation hall and one of the neighbors invited me to look at a bowerbird nest in his front yard. Now, for those of you who aren't Australians, you might not be familiar with bowerbirds, but they get their name from the male who builds these bowers, these little structures to try and attract a female mate. And the bower is kind of like a a tent that's made from weaving sticks and grass together to make this um, shelter. And then to attract the female to the shelter, the male bowerbird is obsessed with the color blue and just lines the entry to the bower with as many blue objects as he can find. Maybe traditionally they would have been flowers, but this particular nest was classic because the entry to it, there was just this incredible array, almost like a mandala made of blue milk bottle caps and blue pens and blue drinking straws and blue clothes pegs and blue rosella feathers all arranged in this design. And I still, when I remember that now, I feel this sense of delight and appreciation for this bird's efforts to create something beautiful for his mate. So again, as you hear that description, just notice, is there any flicker of response there? And if there is, does it feel energetically different from metta and compassion? 
So now we come to the fourth of these four, which is upeka, usually translated as equanimity. And equanimity is not a very common word in English anymore. In fact, I don't think I'd even heard it until I came into contact with these teachings. But basically, it means balance of mind, evenness, stability, composure. And it's the capacity to meet whatever we experience, pleasant, unpleasant, delightful, painful, with non-reactivity. But this non-reactivity is not non-responsiveness. True equanimity has a very refined energetic quality to it. We're open to whatever life presents us without moving into any form of clinging or resisting. So it's a quality of deep acceptance and peace. And it has its etymological roots in words associated with seeing, with vision. So apparently the literal translation of upeka means to look over, which suggests being in a position to see the bigger picture. So it links directly to insight or vipassana. So I sometimes think of it as being that experience you might have had when we're hiking and we're climbing up a mountainside. And after a lot of uphill effort, we might finally get above the tree line and we can look out and see all of the countryside below. And suddenly we see where we came from in a whole new light, a whole new context. There's openness and spaciousness and expansiveness. And we're not stuck in our own narrow viewpoint anymore. And that shift of perspective is a moment of freedom. So perhaps you're wondering, okay, what kind of bird is going to represent equanimity? And I have to admit, this is a little more challenging. So I had to get help. I had to ask some of the staff and volunteers at BMIMC for suggestions. And one of the uh, managers mentioned that for her, owls evoke equanimity. And I remembered that actually I, I had a an amazing image of an Australian powerful owl as one of my screensavers. And it, they sit incredibly still. They have huge, intense eyes. And I have the impression they don't move unless they absolutely need to. And then when they do move, it's very effective. So when I was looking at these images of powerful owls, I saw a photo of one and the caption said, powerful owl holding the back half of a ringtail possum. So don't ask what happened to the front half of the ringtail possum. Because right there is an opportunity to practice equanimity. That owl acts in accordance with its nature, which is not necessarily how we might wish it to act. But we can also appreciate its strength and its magnificence and respect its nature as a predator and see it in its place in the bigger picture of the natural environment. 
So that's a very brief overview of what these four Brahma-Vihara qualities are, and we'll be exploring them a little more over the next few days. But I, I always try to offer all four, because unfortunately, often, metta is the one we hear the most about. But all four of these work together to powerfully strengthen and support each other. Just like a four-ply, four-strand piece of rope is stronger than a one-strand piece. We really need all four of them to work together if we're going to get the best benefit for our hearts and minds. And together they act as a very powerful protection against all afflictive mind states. They also protect and support each other because in the classical teachings there's an understanding that each of these qualities can get a little off balance in various ways. And so each of the Brahma-Viharas has what's known as a near enemy and a far enemy. And the far enemy state is the exact opposite of the quality that we're trying to develop. So for example, with metta or goodwill, the far enemy is ill will. For karuna or compassion, the orientation to non-harming, the far enemy is cruelty. For mudita, appreciative joy, the far enemy is envy. And for upeka or equanimity, the far enemy is reactivity of all kinds. And then the so-called near enemies are qualities that at first glance might seem close to the Brahma-Vihara, but if we look a bit more carefully, we can feel that they're a bit off in some way. So for metta, goodwill, unconditional friendliness, the near enemy is dependent attachment or conditional love, affection, sentimentality. For karuna or compassion, the near enemy is pity, a kind of distancing, looking down on somebody who's suffering. For mudita or appreciative joy, the near enemy is exuberance or giddiness or ungrounded effusiveness. And for upeka or equanimity, the near enemy is indifference. So we can use the different Brahma-viharas as antidotes to help balance each other out. And to get a sense of how this works, there's a way that um, some of my friends and teachers at the Forest Refuge have put this together. So Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs have this way of describing how the Brahma-viharas connect. They say metta, or kindness, is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna or compassion brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, 
or appreciative joy brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka or equanimity brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So in that description, you might see how each of these four qualities can be used to overcome an unhelpful mind state and to balance the others out. And so you might also have noticed that in the end, we return again to metta. Because if the last quality, equanimity, slides into disconnection, it's metta that brings the heart back into balance. So we come full circle, working through each of these qualities over and over again, a spiraling journey around and through all four of these heart qualities, so that ultimately this creates a beautiful force field of unconditional love. Now, if the concept of unconditional love sounds a bit daunting, again, remembering that these are practices, they're trainings. And one aspect of the Buddha's teachings that I'm immensely grateful for is that he didn't just say, be kind and leave it at that. He gave us actual meditation practices we, we can do to strengthen these qualities. And we'll be exploring some of these in the next couple of days. There's a lot more I could say here, but out of kindness, I'm going to bring it to a close now. And just to say, for many of you, this has been another long and full and rich day, perhaps at times challenging. So just to close, I invite you to take a moment just to reflect on this day of practice just for a minute or two. And as you review some of the difficulties, the struggles and the rewards, see if you can get a sense of which of the four Brahmaviharas might have been strengthened and which you might bring as an antidote or support. Getting a sense of whether developing more kindness or compassion, appreciative joy or equanimity might be the resource that you need to face whatever challenge might have come up today if it happens to come up again. And if you didn't encounter anything particularly difficult or challenging today, then right there you have the opportunity to strengthen mudita, appreciative joy, 
and equanimity. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's just take another moment to sit together in silence. Let the words dissolve. <laughs> 